Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Stacking Growth Live. Really appreciate all of you joining us. I'm Cassidy Shield, your host and Chief Growth Officer of Refined Labs. Today, I'm excited to have Victoria Sekol and Tony Flores here with us in this conversation, and I'll have the two of them introduce themselves here in a second. So the topic today, so you can all get warmed up and think about the questions you want to ask as we go through this, um, is one that's really you know close to our hearts. Um, it's something I'm passionate about, as well as Victoria and Tony and the rest of our company, and that is... The idea that to be really great at creating demand for your company or your category or your product, you have to be really good at how you position and message your company. You have to be excellent at how you derive customer insights. And obviously, you need to know how you position yourselves vis-a-vis that market or the competition. And so what we often find is this topic is not discussed uh, that much. And when it is discussed, it's discussed in terms of generalities. Um, and we also noticed that a lot of our, our customers and those in the market struggle with this. So what we thought we'd try to do today is have a conversation on this topic to get into more depth in it and hopefully provide some ability for all of you to walk away with some tips and tricks for how you can go back to your company and, and continue to hone and kind of improve these dimensions from generating customer insights to competitive intelligence to how you position and message yourself. So with that, what I'm going to ask now is uh, Victoria to introduce herself and kind of give some context about why she's passionate on this topic. And I'll then do the same with Tony. So Victoria, over to you. Thanks, Cassidy. I think I speak for all three of us and then I'm going to try and keep it concise here because this is a topic I could go on about. I guess I've been going on about it for about seven years. So here we go. Um, I'm Victoria Sakel. I have joined the Refine Labs team a couple of months ago. Um, leading efforts around Revolt. So you may have heard about this. If you haven't, um, keep an eye out for more announcements to come. But it's our what we're calling our intellectual property warehouse. So as the team has done such incredible work and with clients over time, we've collected playbooks, best practices, lots of data, basically done all the work and testing and experimentation around what works and what doesn't so that you don't have to. And so um, as we think about how do we bring that to life, make it high impact and high value for this industry. That's kind of what what is on my mind day in and day out. So digging into this topic specifically, my background was in brand strategy and market research. And so we'll be talking through the theory and the practice today. I'll speak probably more on the theory side, tying in practice from actually the B2C side, but the problems still hold there. And so no matter what category you're in, no matter whether you're focusing on businesses or consumers or consumers through businesses, these these are important fundamentals. And the problem is always there in the sense that the market's always changing. But the criticality of these uh, core principles that we'll talk through today are also just not deniable. So that's a, that's a little bit of context on myself. Back to you, Cassidy. Thanks, Victoria. And Tony, I'll allow you to introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you, Cassidy. My name is Tony Flores, Senior Director of Demand Gen here at Refine Labs. I've been here for about a year, but I've been doing uh, marketing growth in various roles across tons of different SaaS categories for about a decade now, which is crazy. I think that might be the first time I'm actually saying that out loud. So that's crazy to think about. But for the last couple of years, I've been much more aligned with strategy. Um, As a result, I've really started rocking to processes and systems for deriving customer insights from competitive research, from customer research, and translating those into 
strategies that we can use to um, differentiate from competitors, add new value to the market, and extract some of that mark value back in the form of higher prices, more market share, different things like that. So definitely stoked to be here today and uh, join the conversation. Awesome. And, and what I thought particularly interesting about both Victoria and Tony, and they talked a little bit about that in their introductions, is Victoria has a lot of experience in the space in terms of like the frameworks, the foundations, as she mentioned, being able to apply that to B2C, which we'd all kind of agree, I think is uh, kind of a few years ahead of where we are in B2B. And what I like about Tony's background is he's doing this day in and day out with our customers. So he's done some fabulous work and and really helping our customers kind of reshape how they position and message what they're doing in the market. And when they do that well, obviously it makes what we do for those customers even better. So I look forward to kind of getting into kind of both dimensions of this around, as Victoria said, some of the theory, but also some of the practice and what we're seeing day in and day out. So with that, let's open it up. I'm going to ask Victoria to kind of lay out a foundation or a framework for how we should think about not just go to market, but in particular, the topics that we're talking around here, brand messaging, positioning, and so forth. So let's start with that and we'll go and we'll build off of that and kind of take it forward. So Victoria, over to you. Sure thing. So um, you'll hear many of the Refine Lab team members talking about this day in and day out, but it all starts with the customer. So as you think about any of your strategies, any of your tactics, any of your activations, where we always start is first and foremost, your customer, who you're trying to win with, who you're trying to resonate with, who you're trying to solve a problem for, ultimately, we'll come back to that. But then your second bucket becomes, and in what context, in what environment? So We'll talk about this, I'm sure, at different points throughout today's conversation, but there's your direct category, how you think about yourself, but then building on what you just learned from your deep dive into your audience, who else are they thinking about? Because again, my my example that comes top of mind is from the B2C side, but when I'm looking for a snack, I could be looking for chocolate, or I could be looking for peanut butter, or I could be looking for an apple. And so those three things are not in the same category. And if you're thinking about yourself as you know a data management software and the job that somebody else from the customer side is looking to solve thinks of you in the context of other categories, you need to be aware of how you talk about yourself, which then leads to this third point, which is your positioning, your messaging, your value prop, rooted, of course, in the thing that you do and the thing that your business is built around. Um, in a perfect world, you might design the business by going through these three steps. But in our current reality, we all are working for brands. We all have a product that we're trying to sell. And so it becomes, how do we take that consumer context, dig into the needs and the pain points and the decision-making processes and the personal and professional realities for that audience put it in the context of the market, what's happening, you know, who you're competing against from a direct competitor in a category context or otherwise perspective. And then thirdly, you sort of calibrate your positioning against any of those white spaces, the most powerful or provocative needs that are not being met sufficiently. Um, and from there, you can take it to tactical messaging and engaging on the right channels to bring it all to life and actually reach and resonate with the people who care about you, who you can help, in a different way. So let's recap that a little bit. So we talked about this idea of uh, knowing the customer. We talked about how, the context of how you fit within the market and the landscape and then your unique kind of positioning and messaging. One of the things I often feel when we say something like this, we as in marketers, it feels daunting. And it, and it kind of feels like that seems like a lot of work. And so maybe I'll turn this over to Tony and say, 
how do you kind of get started doing this? And you've, you've probably, you've done this with a few of our clients and it wasn't a big six month research project. It was something different. So what's the quick and dirty way of like hacking this uh, framework to kind of get going? Yeah. So that, that, that's a good question. So customer research and market research, header research can always seem a little bit inaccessible, right? Especially when you think about it, like in terms of like these big consulting firms that do these six, 12 month projects that are a quarter million and have all these different insights that they want to apply across different segments of your business and all this kind of stuff. But especially at Refine Labs, we need to get to actionable insights quickly for our clients, insights that will result in new value, new ideas in a meaningful way quickly. So the best starting point, I always say something's better than nothing. If you're not talking to your customers on a regular basis, you need to be talking to your customers on a regular basis. There are, especially in SaaS, right? In these high growth industries, these high growth categories, especially those that are piggybacking on the wave of demand and urgency from, you know, back in March of 2020, right? Whenever all the stay at home orders took place, right? Being able to really understand how or why your customers are working with you, why they're buying from you, what their core functional need is. That's probably the most important thing you can extract from any sort of market research that you're doing in, in terms of identifying insights to generate demand from. In my experience, and again, speaking specifically with SaaS, because that's who we primarily work with at Refine Labs, I find that all too often, the reason why a buyer buys is not being well articulated on the website. And most of the time, even if somebody is buying with you, even if you are getting period over period growth in, in your key metrics, you know, pipeline revenue, it's difficult to continue in, innovating and growing and breaking into new segments of your market in any sort of meaningful, predictive way if you're unclear what the core functional reason is why someone's buying from you. So there's definitely immediate need to hop on with a customer and make sure that you're understanding what it is that they're actually trying to accomplish by working with you. Nine times out of 10, you probably don't fully understand it unless you're talking to them. So that's, that's the immediate need. And then there's this ongoing need, right? Because even if you do understand what the core functional reason is why a segment of your audience is buying from you, right? The criteria by which they're measuring your effectiveness is likely to be changing over time. Um, so the ongoing need is not necessarily identifying these new reasons why people are buying from you, but it's really to stay on the cutting edge of how your customers are measuring the efficacy of tools and solutions that are designed to address those needs that they have. So again, going back to the original question, get started, start having customer conversations. Your first goal should be to extract those core functional, those core functional needs that customers are, are coming to you with, and then to really understand how they're measuring the um, effectiveness of tools and solutions meant to address those needs. And that comes through, again, ongoing customer conversations, a little bit of surveying, but at the end of the day, it's a pretty straightforward process when you really get down to the meat and bones of what's going on. How do you do that? And so maybe in kind of a practical way. So I think a lot of times we say, like, let's talk to the customer and get the insights. Sure. Well, the people who are talking to the customers today are typically your sales team and, and somebody in kind of customer support, customer success. They're not always thinking in terms of like, I'm, I'm trying to understand an app. They're, like they're trying to get the jobs done that aren't necessarily like, research oriented. So as a CMO or a marketing team or somebody who's not naturally on the front lines, what do they do? And like how much of what they do, how much do they need to do? Like, is this, I need to survey hundreds of customers or is this like, I need to talk to a handful? 
So I would say, again, as a starting point, assuming a lean operation where you're just trying to prove concept and get something going, uh, you really only need to talk to a handful. The number that you need to talk to is really based on how many segments you're trying to understand, right? If you have a core product and it's kind of universally accessible, maybe talk to three or four customers. If you're trying to sell to different industries or different use cases, you need to talk to customers that are sort of aligned with those industries or use cases. Because again, most of the time from industry to use case, whatever it might be, those, those jobs may be consistent. As we said, those needs may be consistent, but the way they measure the effectiveness of those tools may differ from industry or um, segment to segment. So I would definitely say in terms of the way I have these conversations, just to try and get something tangible here. I typically start by saying, okay, you bought from us. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? How are you trying to accomplish it? What are the key metrics that you're trying to report on? Really trying to understand that core functional need. Typically the need, and I will just say this, typically the need is much, much broader than the category. Um, so you're probably, your tool, your solution, your service is probably one of several different things that that customer is, is working with or engaging with to accomplish their broader need. And understanding what that broader landscape is, is something that I have found is only accessible through customer conversations. So that's the starting point, figuring out why they purchased from you, right? Just going down that conversation. Then once you understand that core functional need, really start breaking down the steps associated with executing that need, right? How do you determine what resources you're going to need to execute that, that job? How do you measure the effectiveness of tools and solutions that are meant to um, affect that job? What does execution look like? What does... Um, modification look like? How do you close the job? How do you know it's successfully accomplished? Starting with curiosity. That's probably how I would sum this up. Curiosity is the most important thing here, right? It's a known issue with customer research that, that you know, people don't have a universal language by which they articulate their needs well. So just going in and saying, what are you trying to do and how can we make better products and services will likely lead you down the route, wrong path. So starting with just a genuine curiosity of what they're trying to do outside of your tool to accomplish their broader job, that will glean you way, way better. And I think more utilizable insights than traditional focus groups and different things like that. And then the second part of that is you really want to get statistically significant surveys, right? You have a couple of these conversations, you extract those needs, those outcome statements, and then you begin surveying. And the goal of those surveys is to prioritize those findings based on how important they are to the customer and how underserved or overserved they are by existing solutions meant to address those needs. And then if you do that well, the output of that is this prioritized list of innovation strategies that have a higher than random likelihood of adding net value to the market. And that outcome, I think, is what pretty much any growth-oriented company, that would be you know, gold, right? So that's what we try to get to in a really lean, meaningful way at Refine Labs. A couple of additional uh, pieces that I would maybe, again, to add additional ideas for anyone looking to activate on some of what we're talking about. The first thing is exactly to Tony's point, there's a the, the balance between curiosity and then um, having hypotheses. So I would encourage you as you go in to conversations, there are certain things that you're looking to explore and test and just to keep the conversation you want to keep the conversation open, but you you want to get the answers that will inform the strategy that you're ultimately trying to design. So in some sense, that could look like, who is my target audience? Do I have the right target audience? As you think about who to talk to, it could be exactly any of your customers. It could be segmenting a little bit more deeply into who are your longest standing customers or who are your best customers that you wish every customer you know, looked like so that they might not be longest standing, but they spend a ton with you and they don't bother you at all. If that's what success looks like, you want to dig deeper into, you know, what's working there. 
there's value, of course, in talking to maybe lapsed customers who you've lost and still have a you know connection with um, to understand why, what, what changed in the value prop, exactly to Tony's point. And then there's an element, of course, of prospects. So as you think about segmenting and you think about hypotheses and the things that you want to test, that helps you pick certain people strategically. Again, would underscore Tony's point that a couple of conversations is really, you'll start to hear themes that will echo each other. Um, and you'll, you'll know you've kind of hit your critical mass. The other piece is around sources. So if you can't get in front of customers for whatever reason, think of your hypotheses, think of your learning objectives and listen to gong calls or talk with a couple of people on your sales team or anyone on the front lines, especially maybe in cases where your audience or your offering is really, really technical and you might not totally be processing what they're coming back to you with. Either bring someone along or talk to somebody who's good at doing that translating so you can get those insights. And then the last piece is, we'll, I'm sure dig into this, but tools to make this happen. The listening and the conversations, it's really as simple as hypotheses on a Google Doc, you add notes, you collect. I mean, I have notes on handwritten pieces of paper with themes that I'm hearing from customer conversations that I kind of draw visual maps. You just need like a pen and a paper. As far as that step, when we think about the surveys piece, there are going to that point of it can feel very complex and slow and expensive. There are very lean tools you can leverage to get your couple of questions and your hypotheses or the outcomes you've sourced on you know survey form. You can send it out once you've got a tight list and it doesn't have to be complicated. So I just want to reiterate what's been mentioned on that front as well. Yeah, one of the things I would love uh, your thoughts on, Victoria, is, is is this actually a project or is this just a habit? And so what I mean by that is it should we be striving as a as marketers to try to have one conversation a week or maybe listen to five calls if we have gone or something like that. What are your thoughts on like making this more systematic versus maybe the classical ways, you know, you're creating buy-in that you need to do this research project and then you're going to identify a formal list of folks you want to talk to and you're going to have your customer service person like weigh in on whether we should contact them or not or bother them you know, and you're going to do this for four to six weeks and you're going to take the assessment, you're going to put it in a deck and you report it, you know, you know, review it with your executive management group or whatever. I mean, when do we do that versus when do we just make it a habit of just being ongoingly curious? And then, you know, how do we make that systematic and track it? If that makes any sense. It makes total sense. I think the project piece comes in when you've collected enough critical mass from the habitual listening that you see that a, a pivot or an evolution of your strategy is necessary. But otherwise, it should be a habit. And even to that point, if, even if the customer conversations feels like it's tough to do on a weekly or monthly basis, I've set a goal for myself to have X number of hours of co- customer conversations, literally one-on-one on a weekly basis. You That may not be feasible. You may not want to or have time to do that. But we've, we're in a world where you can log into LinkedIn or be a part of a Slack community and watch, just hear what people are asking Oh my gosh, this, you know, I'm done with this platform. It's XYZ reason. That's all qualitative insights. That is, you know, we Refine Labs talks about a lot, Tony just mentioned as well. You take that qualitative insight, you see where the critical mass is and where ideas are gaining momentum. And then you can, you know, take it into more formal projects around research, sizing, validating, prioritizing, and then incorporating into shifts, whether it's messaging or product or whatever. But it should be a habit. It should be a muscle that you're always scanning. You're always thinking about what you do. You're thinking about how needs might be shifting so that you can detect when they're those critical you know, balls of mass are starting to surface and, and make changes around them. 
I appreciate that. So that's kind of on the customer side. Like Tony, let me pivot a little bit and say, how do you take that and then think about it in terms of like market landscape and competitive intelligence? Is it, I assume part of what you're trying to discover in your customer conversations is who else they consider, what other products and services they use and kind of the larger problem they're trying to solve. Yeah. What else do you kind of advise to do or look at when you're kind of going through this process with our with our customers? I guess the first part is those customer conversations, right? Understanding what those opportunities are for innovation, for adding net value to the market, right? Uh, figuring out what those important needs and outcomes are. In terms of the competitive research, right? The goal of competitive research is obviously once you have these customer insights, you want to update your message, your positioning, your talk tracks, all that, but you want to do so in a meaningful way, right? One that is likely to land you some sort of competitive advantage. If you extract, there's a very important, like, let's say outcome or need in the market from your customer research and you go and you implement that, but it wasn't difficult for you to implement or difficult for you to message on. The second that catches as something that's important or relevant or useful to your target market, your competitors are going to jump on it, especially in SaaS where people move very, very quickly and they're very, very agile. And all of a sudden that opportunity to differentiate becomes a table stake. And all that value that you were adding to the market is now back in, in the hand of the, the customer and it goes away for anybody in the space, a competitor in the space. So when I think about applying customer research or customer research findings in a meaningful way, I think, how can I address this need in a way that's difficult for my competitors to replicate if it turns out to be very valuable? And that simply, for me, again, the lean way of doing this is just going to your specific, starting with, let's say, your category competitors and saying, how are they messaging? Right. What are the content programs, the ancillary supportive programs that they're running? What do, how does it look like they're positioning themselves around this particular needed outcome? And is there a way I can do it better with my resources, my scale, my programs? Right. So that if I can come out and say, hey, if you are in this space, but you're trying to accomplish X, Y, Z in this way, I'm the tool you should go through, go with. Right. And, and finding that source of competitive advantage in your messaging is important because Customer needs are constantly changing, right? Their preferences, their expectations, new technologies, trends, all that kind of stuff is constantly changing, right? So you need to look for sources of differentiation that you can build around. That's going to be difficult for a competitor to just come in and say, I'm going to do the same thing now, right? And that's what we typically see in a lot of SaaS, especially SaaS categories that have seen a lot of growth since the beginning of the COVID shutdowns. A lot of people come in with platitudinal messaging. A lot of people come in saying the exact same things. And now that sort of that growth in those industries has kind of fallen off and tapered and companies are looking for new sources of urgency, new sources of demand that aren't based on some kind of macroeconomic catastrophe. They're struggling to do so. Right? They've gotten all this growth, they've gotten all this scale, and it's because their messaging, the way they think they're generating demand, is no longer differentiated in a meaningful way. And one thing we can assume, especially in B2B, is that we have informed buyers that are aware of alternatives, that are price aware, that are solution aware, and they're making informed purchase decisions. And if that's the starting point of your assumption when going into this process, you can start saying, okay, I understand what is important to my customer. How do I go add value in that regard in a way that competitors won't be able to do, right? And typically you start by looking at what resources do I have? What ongoing programs and specialties do I have as an organization that those category competitors do not? And how do I orient those around that need or outcome? And that's typically how we develop our messaging strategies, at least on my team at Refine. Yeah, I love that, Tony. Uh, there's something in there that as you were talking, I was, I was thinking, and that is what I've often found is... We get very good at doing competitive intelligence feature by feature. Mm -hmm. 
but we seldom look at like how does the competition position themselves and message themselves vis-a-vis others and vis-a-vis yourself and i think that's one of the things that you talked about here is maybe start with that first which is you know you can kind of assume there are always going to be features and functions that you have that they don't and vice versa but it's really like what is the story they're telling the market and how are they telling it and how do you want to counter that which i thought was very interesting Yeah, absolutely. And just to piggyback on that, typically what I find is that companies are trying to continue to push the limit on the same set of metrics that have been around since the beginning of that category's takeoff, right? So if you have 95% accuracy on some AI software, people are trying to say, well, my tool has 96%, my tool has 97%, then eventually it's 100%, right? And all these different ways that people try and message or innovate typically is just adding net value along those sustaining technologies, those sustaining innovations. And like you said, it's mostly feature to feature based. One thing that I would encourage everybody on this call to do is say, okay, I have a set of features for my tool and those are meant to address a specific outcome, but start really digging into your ancillary programs, your onboarding, your customer success, right? These other things that you're doing to support the outcomes, right? Even those functional outcomes that may not necessarily have anything to do with what the person is trying to do, right? How do you help them get better at implementing the idea, getting smarter and more intelligent about what they're doing, right? How can you refine your content program so that you're giving them the information they need to execute? You don't just differentiate off features anymore. You differentiate on the way your features, your content, and your supportive programs all work together to support the customer in their effort to accomplish the job, right? So if you're looking for low-hanging fruit ways to differentiate, go talk to your content teams, go talk to your um, different supportive department leaders, right? Like onboarding, like customer success, ask what they're doing that's uniquely different and surface that in your messaging. Excellent. And by the way, audience, feel free to start dropping questions into the chat. I've seen a few pop up. I'm going to hit on one of those as I turn this over to Victoria. And that is, Victoria, who owns this? And David asks, is is this something where you start with product marketing? I would ask, does product marketing own this? Is this decentralized in terms of maybe product marketing is an aspect of it and demand or brand is an aspect of it. How do you, how do you think of like who should raise their hand and kind of take ownership of this? Um, and does that change on type of company, size of company, et cetera? I love thinking about product marketing owning this because especially as I've spent a lot of time watching the evolution of product marketing over time, it can position you as really critical to the business. Again, we've talked, we have a strong point of view and have you know, no deniability around marketing is core to driving any business's growth. But product marketing in many ways should be the core of that. So what is the thing we offer? How do we do it? And why does it matter? So if you are the expert on the customer and you are the expert on how your product or solution is the best thing or can show up in a better, different, powerful way to solve that need. It positions product marketing really well from a personal and kind of professional development perspective. So just want to address that point. I will also acknowledge that product marketing doesn't exist in every organization or it's part of certain roles. So I I would always encourage don't feel like it get you need to get too hung up on if your job description doesn't necessarily include this. First of all, to your point earlier, Cassidy, this hunger and foot on the ground of your audience and this curiosity around what's happening out there is every employee everywhere's responsibility in order to keep themselves smart and you know on the front of their game for whatever their role is. But as far as who's accountable for bringing this back into the organization, I, I again think this is powerful for marketing or product marketing to own. Make sure that whether it, insight needs to go to product or it needs to go to whoever's running paid social, because for some reason we're hearing Reddit mentioned a million more times in our conversations. And so we should probably be there. 
you know, be that cascade of information and sort of make sure it's getting out to the business. And then other people, A, won't sort of sort of tap, step on your toes and B, you'll position yourself as um, really core to this. As companies grow, there are often, you know, customer insights functions, meaning entire research engines and teams. There's kind of voice of customer programs. I would think more about these three core pieces and how that listening and feedback loop is always living and then identify what makes sense for your size, your budget, your pace of your organization. Do you build out each of those verticals? Do you have one person looking across um, specific to a given product, whatever your structure is? But I always you know, say that the rules are different everywhere. Job descriptions can kind of shift from even the same title everywhere. As long as someone is owning it and it's clear who that is and it's being shared and cascaded to the right people, that's more the end goal. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, that 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 is. I would say one one kind of uh, tip I have for uh, the companies kind of an early stage where you may not have product marketing. I've, I've done this before. And that is still when you're identifying the types of things that you need to do, just bucket it by the function you would expect in a larger marketing organization. I find this an effective way to communicate to senior leaders and folks who may not understand the marketing function. So I would put, there is a product marketing function. Here are the things we're doing within that function, even if it's done by the person also doing demand gen. So like you can, you're starting to train the organization to think about these things in kind of functional buckets and like an owner of responsibility, even if you're the one that has to own both these functions. So just kind of a tip, I've found that an easier way to kind of communicate what different functions do in marketing and also set you up well for scaling your team when you have that opportunity. Okay, so we've we've talked about customer insights, we've talked about the market, we talked about competitiveness and kind of positioning vis-a-vis that. Tony, what how's this translate into like actual positioning and messaging? Like walk us through like that process we go through with you know our customers in terms of taking this insight and kind of this understanding and then turning that into something that a customer would actually use in the market. Just a quick refresher on what we typically do here at Refine Labs. Like our our job, right, as as a demand team is to help our clients increase the perceived and actual value of their products, right? And our hypothesis is that by running our social campaigns the way that we do with these key messages, the key differentiators, by doing so consistently and well over time, we're going to see a, a lift in high intent conversions pipeline and revenue from organic and direct sources, right? With shorter sales cycles, better funnel conversion rates, different things like that. So sort of what we have the ability to affect here at Refine Labs, really, we advise on things like sales strategies, battle cards, you know, feature product roadmap prioritization, different things like that. But what we really affect is the creative, right? That we put out there on social, right? On search, right? The copy that we write, different things like that. So the tangible outcome of this exercise is then going back to our clients and saying, hey, based on what we've discovered through our customer research, these are the opportunities that we have to really stand out in a meaningful way. Based on a review of you and your competitors, we think that you can stand out in a meaningful way that's going to be difficult for competitors to replicate, meaning that we can do this for an extended amount of time without fear of some other you know, competitor coming in and muddying the waters by making the same type of claim. Once we get to that point, we just go and build beautiful creative. We build a compelling, short, punchy copy on our social ads, and we just run it. And we make sure that we're balancing our budgets, our audience sizes, and our our impressions and frequency based on how quickly we can turn over those creatives. But it really is just taking these findings from our customer research and saying, now that we understand how we're best positioned to generate value within a market, again, really 
It's about the perceived value, right? It's about how do we take our existing mix of product, of services, of supportive programs, and package that all up in a very meaningful way, right? So we translate, we basically just go through our typical process from there. We, we prepare some campaign strategy recommendations for our internal creative team. We have, in my opinion, the best creative team in the world. And they go and always create something beautiful and compelling, right? But it starts with a meaningful understanding of what the strategy needs to be. So all this stuff that we're talking about, ultimately, it looks like Facebook posts and Facebook ads and Instagram and LinkedIn and different things like that. Was that what you were asking, Cassidy? Yeah. So I love the practical aspect of that. So it does uh, answer that. I want to kind of maybe ask a question that's on my mind and maybe on the minds of folks here. And that is, what is the the mechanism for capturing this? And what I mean by that is the number of times I've Googled best uh, positioning framework document. And, you know, I've I find myself or my teams in the past, like always figuring out how to make the perfect messaging and positioning document. And then you kind of get this thing filled out. So even though you're very dynamic in, in hearing customer inputs day in and day out, we then revert back to some document that every word needs to be perfect that as soon as you've written it, nobody uses. And then, you know, you go create this creative or you go update your website. You actually write something else. Is there good tips or tricks out there for like, what does this actually look like when I'm capturing messaging and positioning in a way that feels dynamic? I know the output's going to be creative or a website or a sales collateral or a pitch deck. And I know I've done the research well. What's the in-between? And I don't know if there is a good answer, but I'm going to ask Victoria if she has one. I don't have like the go-to tool to recommend, but I'll talk through, to your point around documents that are created and just sit there. I mean, I'm, I'm going through a lot of this process that we're voicing over today for the vault. There are documents that were created before I joined that have just sat there. And there's documents I've created since I've joined that, you know, we workshop and they, they, the foundation of website language or whatever, but it's a real pain. I guess to think through a couple of ways I've approached this that have been helpful. Um, first, I probably going to like blow up the Slack channels now that, but I, in every company I join, I set up a private channel that I call landscape intelligence. And I, as I'm reading, I send articles to myself. I send notes and, you know, this is interesting from an audience perspective. I send images or frameworks to think about. I send screenshots of competitor language or ads. Um, And if nothing else, part of that is because I'm one of those people with 150 tabs and I don't like losing things. Amount of times I necessarily go back through the very top of that Slack channel is neither here nor there. But what that allows you to do is then search for certain words, take your kind of most divergent thinking. And then I, I typically move into the most complex tool there is a Google Doc or an Excel. And I have a tab for audience insights. And again, the themes and the things I'm hearing or the trends I'm seeing happen, just bucket by themes, you could use Google slot, you could use slides, you could use a notion page, you know, the tool is less the issue here. And I do the same thing for the competitor piece. So as I hear of new competitors, I've got like sticky notes on my desk that I spend time when I'm like working out or whatever. And I kind of Everybody does this, I'm sure, instead of listening to music, you stock competitor websites. But, you know, just weave it into whatever singular source is helpful. And then, you know, you've seen some of these documents, Cassidy, when we when we work through these one pagers or whatever, you can go back and say, well, here's the language a competitor used, or here's the reason that we think this is our white space and my language might not be right, but let's figure out the better language. So I would encourage collect all the thinking, be watching this habit of always 
keeping your feelers out there. And then from there, if we codified it into a couple of key buckets, but you can break it down however is most helpful. Capture your sources, the things you're listening to, capture your links as is helpful, but really just capture the findings or the things to think about or the trends you're seeing. And then from there, as you bring it all together, it's it's all in one place for you. But if you need to share with stakeholders, if you need buy-in around all the work you did to get to wherever your output is, that can be helpful too. So that's just my framework. may not be of interest to anyone, but uh, hopefully that helps with some ideas. <laughs> uh, that is helpful. It's, it's, you know, one thing I've, I've struggled with this, as I mentioned, in the teams I've been a part of, and, and really one way we've thought about this in the past is the output is actually what becomes the document per se. And I, I would think about this in a few ways if this is helpful for folks out there. And that is your website becomes much more dynamic in terms of what you say, because you want it to be really reflective of kind of your positioning. And what I like about a website is you could do it at a very high level in terms of the hero of the site. But then as you dig through the pages, you have to be very crisp, crisp and clean on how you're positioning at a much more detailed level. I often find that websites aren't representative of how a company really talks to and positions themselves as as well as their portfolio. The second thing that I, I would spend a lot of time doing going back to like getting insights is what's what is being said in the sales process and how does that differ between what you've written down for positioning and messaging and maybe what you've said externally. If your sales team is using your messaging and they're effective, then you're on to something. If the sales team is using their own messaging, then you got a problem. And this is the beauty of things like Gong and Avoma and so forth and so on. You can go listen and do this yourself. And I think the last one I love that Tony, you mentioned, and that is when you're doing creative, that is where the rubber hits the road in the fewest amount of words. And that matters, right? Because that's also going to be how the sales team thinks about it in terms of a hook. That's also going to be the hook on your website. So kind of the essence of this is, can you get anybody to really engage and understand what problems you solve and who you are through your creative process? And when you think of these things as the output, maybe you don't even need a messaging doc. I don't know. Uh, I'm still battling that within my head. But you definitely find that these things that are in market end up becoming kind of your your real-time guide into are you effective or not in this in, in kind of your positioning and messaging. One question that we've gotten that I want to ask, and that is, when we think about positioning and messaging, are we trying to make it just better? Are we trying to make it different? Like, what are we striving for when we go through this process? Is it like, maybe Tony, you mentioned this, uh, I'm trying to be a better version of the competition, or am I trying to be a different version? And how do I decide that? Better is a a word that we should all remove from our <laughs> our vocabulary, right? I see Victoria nodding her head, right? Because better is so subjective, right? Like anything can be better. It can be faster, stronger, chocolatier, whatever it is, right? So what I always strive for, and this is the term that I, I, I always share with my clients is we're trying to create messaging that is useful, right? Immediately useful to the problems that they're trying to solve right now that is relevant to their current situation, their current preferences, their current ideas. And in my experience, right, if someone's trying to do something that is better, right, if we can articulate how we do something in a more relevant and useful way than a competitor, right, that would be the way that I cl most closely align with something that is better, right, especially in B2B SaaS, right, whenever usefulness and relevance is is pretty easy to understand relative like something in like a B2C space. 
in terms of differentiating from a competitor, I think you should always strive for both, right? Become rel- make update your messaging so it's more relevant, update it so it's more useful. But if your competitors are saying the exact same thing, again, the assumption that we have here is that your buyers right, are informed, they're smart, they're rational, they they have the company that they're buying on behalf of best interest in mind, right? They're probably doing some research. So no matter how compelling and relevant your research suggests your messaging is, if your customer or if your competitor is saying the same thing in the exact same way, you're just noise, right? So that's why I always come back to say, okay, you can articulate something that you do in a meaningful way, but you have to orient it around features, products, or programs that are ongoing at your company right? That will be difficult for your competitors to replicate. Because if you come out and say, I do, I help you accomplish X, Y, Z because of one, two, and three. And that seems to be getting traction. Then all of a sudden your competitor starts hearing that pop up and seeing it during closed loss notes and different things like that. Then someone, someone is going to surface that up to their advertising team and say, Hey, you should run the same message because we're losing a lot of sales because they're saying this. So you should say the same thing, right? And if you're doing something that's very not, not based on any sort of key differentiation in your products or your content, they can just run that, right? And then you just wind up being noise again, right? So strive for usefulness, strive for relevance, but ultimately you want to strive for messaging that in a way that's going to be difficult for rep uh, competitors to ethically replicate in their messaging. One question as a follow-up to that that I've had in the past, and that is how do we think about brand level message versus kind of product level message? These tend to have like, there's different groups, like you may have a brand organization and they're coming up with taglines and high level messaging. And then you may have a product organization. It's like, I need to position my products uh, this way in order to be most effective. And how should we be thinking of this as, as marketers? Um, is there a spectrum? Is there, are these two different things? Do we not need to think of it that way? Maybe there's another way to think about it, but how do we kind of level out our messaging and, and how do we set kind of priorities around, around that? I don't know, Victoria, if you want to take a shot at that. Yeah, happy to. Um, so maybe building off of Tony's point there, um, the, the words you just referenced in synonym form are actually a common framework that my first company and many of you people on this call may have heard of, Kantar, has spent lots of lots of decades actually validating to their credit, actually. Um, so meaningfully different and then salient. So as you think about those three points, salient meaning that you come to mind around a given need. We've talked a lot about jobs here. So you know, someone mentions, I need to search online for something and Google comes to mind. Of course, it's highly salient. And then you know, meaningful does the difference that you've anchored around actually matter. And then are you different or distinctive? I see the, the comment there. Those can be, you know, can be a gray line on how different those two words even are. But when you think to your point, Cassidy, around um, those as sort of like the rows, and then we have a column for the brand side of things and the bigger problem that's being solved and the upper level of the funnel um, around, you know, what is what is the broader level conversation we're taking part of here? And then you have a column for the product and the way we're solving that, the features and the functional elements and why we're doing it better as sort of the reasons to believe. You can sort of bullet out your your perspectives and your stances in each of those, what would be six buckets. So when you talk about brand and how you're showing up in just brand campaigns or on social and the way you're engaging, is it in a distinctive way? You think you can there, you can think about tone of voice and how your personality is showing up and it translates to the way, the meaningful way that you want to be different for your consumer. So is it intellect? Is it thought leadership? Is it sophistication in your tone? That's distinct, which translates to a competence and 
an unparalleled level of expertise that is meaningful. Um, so I would think about it as, you know, go through those different layers and then think about the higher level benefit, the higher level solution that you're solving, and then the kind of concrete reasons to believe the functional elements, the features that you're cranking out, and that becomes the product and the performance piece to anchor against. And then Tony, when we when you think about like how Victoria outlined that, any tips or tricks on what we advise our clients to kind of put into the market? Is there a mix? Are, am I running kind of the higher level brand like messaging 30% of the time? Am I running more product level features and benefits or problem statements? 60% of the time. Is there a rule of thumb or does it just depend? It depends. It really is situational. And, and you know, being in the role that we're at uh, as a demand team at Refine, oftentimes we don't have the ability to affect the broader brand message in a timely manner, the product roadmap, the content program, the other supportive programs. Typically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to work with what is already existing within our clients' infrastructure and just repackage all of that up in a meaningful way and helping our customers identify the sources of meaningful differentiation they already have at their fingertips. They just didn't really know how to package all of that up. Um, So in terms of how you go about and taking that newfound differentiation ability and messaging thing out. We do it like basically twofold. The percentages vary, right? Depending on resources and, you know, just a myriad of different factors. But essentially we go and we do run, we run two kinds of campaigns on a consistent basis. We run um, campaigns that speak to those functional outcomes, those differentiators, right? And, And basically articulate how our clients' mix of features, content, supportive programs address those important underserved needs in, in a meaningful way. We don't necessarily go out and say, we do this differently than competitors, so you can come to us. But the fact that we have that uninterrupted voice for an extended period of time, that is net beneficial to us. And we get that more often than not because our competitors struggle to replicate those messages simply because they can't, because we've taken the time and effort to package everything up in a unique way. In terms of the mix, right, we'll run those. And then in parallel with those, we also run those camp or those ads, those, those, those ideas that um, serve to increase uh, authority and, and trust, right, in a specific category. Those are going to be things like your webinars, your case studies, um, your content that address those things that are being messaged heavily in, in your primary campaigns. Um, those, that's typically the mix that we run. And we want to run those over time. So it's those functional messages right around those differentiators and then those things that help build trust and authority within those ideas, right? And in an ideal world, not only are we building features around specific outcomes, but the content and supportive program leaders are also aware of what those outcomes are and they're developing their content, their programs in support of those outcomes as well. We run both of those types, those functional campaigns and those authority and trust building campaigns in parallel. Again, we can typically do it in an uninterrupted way for longer than clients have previously because we package things up in, a, in the right way. And if we do that well over an extended period of time, that's typically when we start to see our lift and high intent conversions, better funnel conversion rates, shorter sales cycles, that type of thing. Okay, I'm going to ask you, ask each of you to kind of help summarize uh, what we've discussed here today for the for the audience. But I have one last question that Daniel asked, and that is, it's really interesting that he asked this idea of like, the, is differentiation always possible? And you think about the B2B SaaS world, which we're kind of using as an example. I mean, there are 20 different CRMs, and there's 30 different email platforms. Like, how do you approach this? And we approach this obviously with our clients, where where they're not necessarily the only one in a category. 
How should you think about that? Are we always striving for differentiation? I'll kick us off here because actually in my past role, I conducted um, a laughing because I, of course, have thoughts on this one. (laughs) In my last role, I conducted a bit of research around drivers of choice across different categories just to get to like a macro level framework. And what this question asks or hits on is the commoditization is around the functional elements of what the thing does. There's a few other elements that time and time again are part of decision making, whether you're a consumer or a business or a business decision maker, I should say. Um, And there's the emotional component to think about. There's the experiential component. And then actually there's the social component, which frankly, I think B2B is still very far behind on. Uh, B2C is only getting this social component, you know, in the, in the mix here. But when you think about, yes, you can be a functional commodity. You can have the exact same thing as the next guy, but if how you're showing up, the value you're delivering again, even you know, Tony was speaking about content or thought leadership or webinars or how your people do, helping people do their jobs better, that creates an emotional affinity that's very distinct. Think about Apple versus Microsoft. You feel very different ways towards those two brands, although functionally, you could argue that their laptops are. I have strong opinions on that one, but we won't go there. Uh, you could argue that their laptops are, you know, arguably interchangeable. So I would think about, and then, you know, that element of how you make your users feel and how you engage with them as much as the experience that you deliver. And that could be additional support. It could be the moment they engage with you on the sales perspective, because that's actually in some sense, your wedge. If you can really nail those different elements beyond just the functional, you you know, that's the mode that's going to be really hard to replicate and people copying you becomes obvious that they're copying you versus just leveling up on their skill set or their functions. I I really like that, that mental framework of like not focusing on the functional and at some higher level, kind of whether it's, you know, emotional or social. And what goes through my mind is like, we should probably always just do that. Right. I mean, like, is there a time, maybe I'll ask the other way, is there a time when, when would you actually position on the functional? Because oftentimes that, can get commoditized away and fairly quickly. You just need a couple of engineers to build a new feature. Maybe that's the mistake. I'll kind of leave it with the audience for us to think about that, or we can hit it in the wrap up. Maybe that's the mistake a lot of us make in B2B is we think it's a, a game of functional positioning when it's not a game of functional positioning. It's, a, it's all about emotion and social, just like it is in the B2C space. Interesting. I like that a lot. All right, Victoria, wrap us up. Like, how framework wise, can you summarize this for us? And then Tony, I'm going to ask you like practically what should, uh, what should be the call to action to this group uh, tomorrow as they go back and, you know, re-listen to, to this conversation and kind of decide what they're going to do next. So Victoria, you first. Sure. Um, I would always be thinking about who you're trying to win with, whether that's current state, who you're rocking the socks off with right now, who you want to be winning with but who they are, again, jobs they're trying to accomplish, pain points that could be improved upon. Think about where you're operating and don't limit yourself to just your defined category or what people might search in G2 to compare you to. Think about, again, alternative solutions. If your category disappeared, what would people use? If you asked, you know, if your brand disappeared, what would people use? And you'll get some interesting insights. And then thirdly, from there, think about exactly what we were just talking about around distinction and differentiation and meaningful or relevant anchor points and then salience. How do you keep yourself top of mind in a way that what you're able to uniquely bring to the conversation is something that your consumers will care about because you know who your consumers are and you know 
what else is out there. Thanks, Victoria. And so, Tony, then we talked about what is like one thing somebody should do tomorrow to kind of get started in improving what they're already doing or get started in actually doing what we talked about if they're not doing it today? Get excited to talk to customers. Start uh, cultivating internally your own curiosity around what they're trying to do as it as it expands beyond your category of software, tool, or service. Don't forget to talk to Close Lost because you're going to get a lot of really useful insights talking to Close Lost as much as you talk to Close One. Take an inventory of your category competitors' features and the way they're packaging those up, along with their supportive programs and and content. Right, really figure out what it is that you can be doing and offering your, your market right in, in, a, in a meaningful way that's going to be difficult for your competitors to do given their mix of assets. That's, in my opinion, the starting point for any sort of meaningful differentiation strategy. And then do it consistently because the day you do one research project, the day after that, it's a little bit less relevant. And the day after that, it becomes even more uh, even less relevant, right? Because consumer preferences and tendencies are constantly changing. There's constantly new tools constantly new disruptive innovation that's being introduced to them on a regular basis, especially in B2B SaaS. So make it a habit and try and have fun with it because it can be daunting if you're feeling like you're trying to get something specific out of it. But if you're genuinely curious about how people are trying to go about accomplishing what they're trying to accomplish and are really interested in developing features, content, supportive programs to address those needs, this becomes kind of like treasure hunting. And that's the way I think about it, right? And when you're looking at it more from a fun perspective rather than an obligatory perspective, it becomes easier to make a habit out of it, right? And the thing here is, as you said earlier, Victoria, is making this habitual is going to be very important to this program's success. I like that. I'll add one more thing to that. Um, Challenge yourself and your team to have one conversation a week. Can you do that? Learn one thing from one customer prospect or somebody in your market one time a week, ask each person on your team to do the same thing. And, you know, once you can do it once a week, try it twice a week and go from there. All right, Tony, Victoria, this was great. Thank you for your time. Thank you everybody uh, for hanging in there and being a wonderful audience. We'll be back in two weeks on our next episode of Stacking Growth Live. In the meantime, you can get a recording of this uh, episode in the next few days as we put it out in the market. Thanks everyone. Take care.